Hello, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. This episode is part of an ongoing series in which I have conversations with Christians who are artists. The quality of their art is worth an episode just in and of itself. But I'm also interested in learning how it is that different Christians who are artists understand the relationship between their art and their faith and how that is realized in their art. My guest today is novelist Janine Joyner. If you have been a listener to this podcast, you may remember Janine from my interview with Foundling House in episode 33. Janine's novel is titled Paper Dolls, Trust Your Instincts. The reason I chose Janine's book is that the concern that motivated her to write this particular novel is a concern that overlaps significantly with my own. We cannot talk about that concern without providing an essential spoiler to the book, but Janine is more concerned to address the subject of the novel than she is about preserving the spoiler. This book is about the sexual trafficking of children. You would not know that from the beginning of the book. The book begins, like many elementary, middle school age books, with a focus on children of that age living normal lives, dealing with the stuff of everyday relationships. But then the book turns dark, deeply dark, very quickly, as the main characters encounter a classmate and what we think are her younger sisters who are being prostituted. I don't know of anyone who ever grew up saying, my ambition and desire is to be a prostitute. Prostitution has always arisen and still does arise from abuse and deprivation. It has always been and still is a form of slavery. When I was teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic College in Florida, I learned of an organization on the West Coast that helped people escape prostitution. I was inspired to attempt to begin a similar effort from a Christian stance to do the same thing where I was. Although I was unable to bring that vision into realization, my conviction about this issue is long and deep. That is why I wanted you to learn of Janine's book and to hear her story about writing it. It is an example of how a Christian can use their art to make a faithful response to Christ and how that art can raise awareness and create change. Well, Janine, thank you for being with me. Welcome back. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. So why don't we begin uh, by letting you kind of tell your own spiritual journey. Okay. Because that has led you uh, into being a writer and, and an editor. You know, it's funny of all the questions that you sent me. This was the one that I'm like, man, how do I condense this? Um, I um, was raised in Texas. Um, I was raised in a, a church going home, Christian parents. Um, you know, we had our typical ups and downs and you know, family dysfunctions and those sort of things. But I was raised in a very, um, a church that was very legalistic. Um, there was no 
real understanding of grace. It was very much a works-based type of faith. So I grew up with a really skewed idea of who God is. I felt like he was kind of an angry old man in the sky with a clipboard of sins with a list, you know, and he's checking the sins off as I go. And he's like, oh, Sinners in the hands of an angry oh, God. Yes, exactly. And, and you know, he was just kind of, yeah, well, she, that was a big one. She did that one. All right, check, you know. So um, by the time I was in my mid-teens, I, um, I was really just going through the motions spiritually. I really didn't have an understanding of Jesus or of um, salvation or of a loving God at all. And so, um, you know, I would go to church on Sunday, but then not live like I quote should the rest of the week and, you know, just really struggled through my teen years. And then, um, when I was 21, I met who is now my husband and, um, we met working at a barbecue restaurant together. We were both in college and, um, I started visiting his church, which was the first experience I had of a church outside of the one that I grew up in. And it was very different. It was the complete opposite of what I had known. And I walked into a building where people were happy to be there. You know, worship was a celebration. It was exciting. And, you know, people were raising their hands and clapping. And that was something we never did when I grew up. And um, I really began to wrestle with not really knowing what to do, you know, with what I was feeling. And um, so over the course of several months, you know, in many conversations, um, he ended up leading me to Christ one morning, about two o'clock in the morning, you know, we'd set up late talking and um, he just, he realized that I really didn't know if I was going to go to heaven when I died. And he, I said, well, how can you know that? And he's like, you can know. So we you know, had that conversation and talked and I ended up recognizing that I needed to not just believe in my head that Jesus is who he says he is, but I had to believe in my heart and place my life in his hands. And so that's what I did. And that was really the beginning of the true faith journey of my life. And um, I had, as far as writing goes, I had always written poetry and journaled and, and written stories. It was just something I had always enjoyed from the time I was in elementary school. And, um, you know, English was always my favorite subject. Give me an essay. That was my favorite thing. Don't make me do math, <laughs> but I'll write an essay all day long. And, um, so, you know, as the years went by, I, that would be an outlet for me. I would journal my thoughts. I would write poetry, that sort of thing. And, it was just always kind of enmeshed with just hobbies and different things that I did. It always involved writing. My mom was the same way, so I probably got it from her. She's always been good at giving words as a gift to people. So, um, yeah, that's kind of in a nutshell. Okay. Well, and, and particularly, um, you know, how did you decide that I want to write a novel? I had started blogging when my children who are now grown were preschoolers and it was my first experience in putting something out there for someone else to read. And I really enjoyed it. And over the years, people would say, Oh, 
you're a good writer. You should write a book and you should write a book about your family or you should, you should write a book about adoption. Our kids are adopted. And so that was always, oh, you should write a book about that. And I would kind of kick that around, but never really landed on what I would write about. I couldn't have told you what I wanted to write about. And, um, and then after, after we moved to Tennessee and um, I started writing more, I thought, man, I would love to write a book, but I really didn't think it'd be fiction. I really thought I would write a book about my life or about something I was passionate about, but fiction was not on my radar at all. And so I one day was just sitting in my living room and I just saw the first scene, the opening scene of Melody walking to her best friend's house in her kids and getting the blister on her heel. And that's what happened to me when I was in sixth grade. My best friend lived a couple of miles away and I walked uphill to her house in a pair of kids and I just kind of wrote out the scene. I had my hair in a ponytail, you know, all the Melody is me in the book. And um, so I wrote that first chapter. I just knocked it out, just boom, in like an hour. And then within a day or two, I had three or four chapters written. I thought, man, I'm going to have this book finished in a month. But it took three years. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and, and let's, you know, um, Christians that are writers or mm -hmm. artists of any kind, uh, you know, kind of relate their faith and their art in different ways. Yeah. You know, two examples uh, is that, you know, some perceive themselves specifically as writers who want to convey the Christian message, mm -hmm. um, you know, and so they consider themselves Christian writers, right. um, but others uh, consider their writing, uh, they, they include their faith, it informs their writing, but they don't see themselves specifically as Christian writers or Christian artists. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I think, uh, I guess, of the musician Al City uh, is mm -hmm. an example. And others, uh, you know, mono that that profess to be Christians, but their music primarily uh, isn't geared toward the Christian audience. Right. Uh, so you know, for you, uh, how do you see the interrelationship between your faith? And your, your I life? I don't believe it's possible to separate my faith from any other part of me. You know who I am in Christ impacts everything I do. It impacts how I write. It impacts how I parent. It impacts how I live, how I do my laundry. <laughs> you know, my, my identity as a Christian is the core of everything I do. But everything I do doesn't necessarily function as a, um, what would be the word? I write, I want to write a true story that's whole and that's real. I don't want it to be um, flowery or, you know, so many Christian books that I have read lack um, depth because, you know, they want to appeal to a certain audience. They don't want to offend anyone, you know, with bad language or, you know, scenes, whatever. And, and I, I don't ever want to write something gratuitous, obviously. But when I wrote this book, it wasn't me either writing as a Christian writer. It was me writing the truth of what's going on 
and how this could be addressed in light of the reality of who Christ is. And so that's pretty much how I see it. Um, well, and, and, you know, kind of looking forward, uh, to your other writing projects, mm-hmm. um, you know, do you have other novels in mind? Uh, will they be, uh, in the same way? Cause we're going to get into this in a little bit, uh, more yeah. fully, you know, because, uh, your book, uh, deals with a pretty heavy subject. Yes. And, um, and, and so, you know, cause like, um, when I interviewed Terry Roberts, uh, in his novels, uh, Terry's are fiction and, mm-hmm. and, and they're historical fiction, you know, uh, he enjoys, you know, that doing that, but for him, there's always some, uh, fundamental human and philosophical question mm-hmm. that forms the basis. Yeah. Um, in, in your context, well, and well, let me, let me go back. And, and then, uh, another writer that I interviewed, uh, is Maida Commerce, uh, and Maida uses her writing, uh, specifically, uh, for healing. Mm. Uh, she does story medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, is this kind of how you're going to use your art as a means of helping people reflect upon uh, events such as the one we're going to be talking about? Or was this kind of, this was just my first one and I did it on this, but other novels may not uh, be oriented in that way. Yeah. I think the latter is probably the case. I mean, like I said, I never saw myself as a fiction writer. I've always wanted to draw attention to um, truth and you know to to justice and to the the things that are important to the heart of god um i actually did start a second novel kind of as a sequel to paper dolls um and i'm probably five or six chapters into it but with the pandemic and all the unrest and just the heaviness of of what life has been the last couple of years i had to take a break because mm-hmm. I was struggling just to let myself go there mentally into a story that involves trauma and involves abuse and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And so I have it and I've put it aside though. And I've actually completely switched gears and I've begun writing more of a memoir. Um, we moved out into the country um, last year in the middle of 2020 and bought land and we have goats and chickens and, you know, a little mini farm, which was a a dream of mine. And um, through that, God has really revealed and just showed so many truths of, of who he is and of how he loves us and how he functions just through the way I take care of these animals, you know, and bringing, bringing children over to my house who maybe are dealing with brokenness or, trauma of their own. And I see when they get around these little miniature goats and these little girls forget for five minutes, the grief that they're feeling and they're just squealing and happy because these little goats are chewing on the hems of their skirts. Mm -hmm. So my focus has shifted to writing more of that, like how God has used that to, um, to heal me in a lot of ways and to kind of, um, 
bring a bright spot into what's been just a dark season for a lot of people. You made reference to the fact that um, uh, in writing realistically, mm-hmm. um, it's different from a lot of Christian writers that you have read. Yeah. Uh, how has that gone over among <laughs> students that you that have read you? <laughs> so that's been interesting. So when I wrote the book, I wrote it with, and I don't mind telling, I wrote it, the book involves a pimp. And I, when I'm writing what he says, like, you know, a pimp's not going to say, oh gosh, darn, the police are here. You know, (laughs) it's just not the real world. And if you write, he said an expletive or he cursed, like you can do that, but you lose the force of his anger. And I carefully chose which words I used because I wanted it to be readable by a young adult, you know, and I was hoping that, you know, young Christian women especially would read this book because I want them to be aware of what's going on around them. I mean, you know, for some girls maybe at risk and they need to know the signs of, of what is happening. But so when I wrote it, I have a friend who ran a ministry in my town that worked with victims of human trafficking. And I had her read the first part of the book um, as I was writing it because I wanted her input. I wanted to make sure it was realistic. I wanted to make sure that um, it made sense, you know, that the details were correct. And I needed her input in how to wrap things up, you know, as the story progressed. And the one thing she said to me, she said, Janine, whatever you do, leave the language in there. She said, if a victim or a survivor reads this book, they're not going to be offended by this language. This is nothing compared to what they hear every day. And she said, they need to know that there are people out there who will help them and who will listen to them and who aren't scared off by them. And so because of her, I left the language in there. And so when the book released, you know, most people were very positive about it. Most people who read it understood that this was part of the story. Um, but I had one reviewer <laughs> who said she claims to be a Christian writer, but the cursing shows that she's not. Mm. And yeah. my, I got so frustrated and I said, this person is more angry that a pimp said a four letter word than that a toddler got raped. Right. Right. It's just completely upside down, which is, I mean, I could preach a sermon on how backwards that is and how, you know, well, the Tony Campolo of- did, you know, who Tony yes. Campolo? Yes. Yeah, yeah, he did. He always, you know, cause he, yeah. would, he would say something like that in the pulpit and he would yeah. say, you know, you're more angry about me using an expletive in the pulpit than you are about, you know, all the, the yes. The- Someone told me about that. And I found out it's exactly right. You know, we get so caught up in the things that really aren't important, you know, and and if you're writing a book, you want it to be realistic and the characters who are bad are going to say bad things. That's just the real world. We'll talk a little more about the audience because you you mentioned that a little bit, but if if, when you're unaware, when you don't know what the book's about yet and, and you begin to read it, it seems like a book addressed to middle schoolers, right? Uh, you know, it seems like a Newberry Award kind of, you know, genre book. Uh, and then you get into it and and boom, you're into some really serious, heavy stuff uh, that's more genuinely adult. Mm-hmm. 
even though it, kids are experiencing this adult. Yes. That's a, and that's I really wanted to reflect the reality of that because you know at the beginning of the book, these are kids. These are gir two girls who, you know, their life is normal. They're twelve years old. They're in seventh grade. You know, they're just hanging out, waiting for school to start in September, and they don't know anything outside of their small town really even exists. They don't have any awareness of the evil that is literally moving in across the street. And so their life goes from this innocent, normal childhood to being thrust into very adult um, circumstances because that's what happens. Right. It happens to kids in America and around the world every day. Right. That's the reality. So, you know, you want that shock because it, it is a shock. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I told you uh, in our emails uh, mm -hmm. that my own connection with your subject matter of human trafficking and uh, and for me, prostitution kind of in yeah. broadly, more broadly um, was that when I was teaching at Palm Beach Atlantic College, uh, I taught a class called Theology of Ministry. Mm -hmm. And um, I divided my class up into small groups and, and gave them uh, a ministry to a person uh, or to a group that, that somehow has special needs or is, or is a marginal group. Mm -hmm. uh, because a lot of a lot of kids come out of, you know, churches and, and, and going into ministry, wanting to minister to big churches, uh, doing evangelism and those kind of things. And so they think in those terms and, and they don't realize that uh, when you get to ministering to um, uh, folks with, with mental handicaps and, and challenges or, uh, with those in prison or with the homeless, um, or, you know, with physical, severe physical disabilities, um, it takes enormous energy. It takes enormous amount of time. Yes. Um, it focused on very few people. And mm -hmm. so you don't get the large evangelism results or you don't have the large right. groups and, um, and of course, the 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 verse that they all kept coming back to was the Matthew twenty five. When you've done this to the least of these, you've done it unto me. And during all that time, I was driving my daughter uh, back and forth to school, um, and we had to drive by the West Palm Beach Airport. And on the on the fringes, uh, which is common, you know, uh, around airports or, or strip bars, and and that really got me thinking about. Uh, uh, women, especially, uh, that are, that are, uh, a part of that experience. And, um, and so I was, I was driving to a church uh, that I was supply preaching for one day and was listening to NPR. Uh, and there was a, there was a, a segment in which they were interviewing uh, a woman out in, in, uh, Oregon that was involved in the social ministry. It wasn't a Christian ministry, but it was mm -hmm. a social ministry that um, uh, was helping people escape prostitution. And that just kind of, that, that just, you know, hit me as this is exactly what I've been thinking about. Just didn't know how to articulate it and didn't have it focused. And so I called her and, and, and on multiple occasions, really talked through what she was doing, how she got about doing it. And, um, uh, and that led me to, to try to start an effort in West Palm. Mm -hmm. form an organization that would that would help people escape prostitution and, mm -hmm. and of course that led me uh more deeply into understanding the phenomenon uh 
uh, and especially the experience of abuse, yeah. especially the experience of pimps. Um, but mine, mine was focused more upon adults and, mm-hmm. and as, as yours bravely does and, and importantly does, uh, it focuses upon the trafficking of children. Yeah. Um, let's talk more fully about how that, that came about for you as a topic because. It's yeah. So that. With that. Yeah. The fr- so the friend who I had helped me along as I was writing the book and who, who gave me the advice as far as the, the storyline and the language. Um, she again, ran a ministry here in our town that they would basically go to the local motels and they would feed the people in the motel, the motel population. They're not technically homeless, but they would, what you would probably call the near homeless. Right. Because they, they get their, they're staying, they're paying a lot of money to stay in very terrible situations, but they don't have credit. They don't have savings. They just kind of live week to week in these motels. And in these same motels, you have got pimps and prostitutes and all the trafficking that goes on. So um, when she was running this ministry, I went out with her several times. We would go room to room with food and knock on the door. And she knew everyone because she'd been doing this for years. And they all they all knew her. And she would pray with them. Um, and many of them were prostitutes with children in the room. You know, and there were women who were, you know, quote unquote, working with their kids in the same room. Right. You know, these kids are are watching TV while mom works. And, you know, I watched a, a John show up with a 20 and put it in her hand and smile and walk away because he had, you know, and it, it. so that was eye opening to me. And then in the process of all of that, they identified children and found out that children are brought in, you know, very often they're kidnapped within the U.S., sometimes their children are prostitutes. Sometimes they've been brought in from other countries, namely, you know, Mexico and South America. They're brought in illegally and there's no documentation that they exist. So these kids are kept in motel rooms from the time they're babies. And these children are sold as sex slaves from the time they're babies. Right. You know, they're given suckers to be quiet. Um, You know, they don't know any different and they're, they're just, the level of abuse they endure. Um, I know of one little girl recently who, who said she had been, she's, I think she was nine or 10 years old. And she said she had been raped every day since she was five. Oh my. You know, so when, when I was writing the book and the story was, was um, developing, I had to go there because I felt like someone needs to know what's happening. Um, these kids are in school a lot of times. Um, well, I guess and that kind of surprised me, mm-hmm. uh, that there's an effort to try to make it seem normal. Yeah. Uh, yeah. talk a little more about that. I mean, you know, they'll just, you know, cause there's truant officers and things around. So they're going to, you know, sometimes the kids are in school and they're not always, but, um, you know, the kids will be in school, but they're falling through the cracks. I mean, I have got friends that are teachers in, inner city schools and in lower income schools. And they've got kids who can't stay awake through class. And sometimes it's an innocent reason where maybe mom works all night and they've been up with their baby brother or sister, but sometimes these kids are exhausted because they've been being abused all night long. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's just a, I guess, I guess a desire to show some semblance of normalcy, I guess, or maybe just to avoid, you know, truancy. I don't really know the logic behind it 
but that they are there. And I've had teachers who've read Paper Dolls reach out to me and say that now that they've read that and they've seen the signs, they now are looking at their classroom differently and they're recognizing, oh my gosh, that could be what's happening with, you know, this little girl over here. So, you know, most people don't even know what's happening here in the U.S. They think it's a thing that happens in third world countries, you know, Vietnam, Thailand, they see, or India. They see it as being something far. But right. child sex trafficking is in every state. It's in every major city. It's in many, 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 probably most small towns. Anywhere there's a road that can get people in and out quickly. Right. And a motel. There's human trafficking. And that involves children. Right. And, and they have um, uh, amazing ways of networking yes. while keeping themselves secret. Yes. Uh, and when this book was written or when this book takes place is in the 80s. And it was kind of when there was the fledgling version of the Internet that it was very, you know, um, reserved for people who had high um, level security, like people in the military or, you know, police forces. But now with the internet, I mean, there's the dark web, you've got Pornhub, you've got all of these websites where they literally post videos of children being raped and they are sold over and over and over again. And it is an absolute epidemic. Um, how, um, how did you research all this? How did it, how did I did a lot of research online, um, looked up different organizations that work with human trafficking. Um, and then again, you know, people who work within the ministries and the organizations that um, help victims and survivors of it. Um, ask a lot of questions and, you know, did a lot of reading. Well, yeah, because you, you uh, at the end of the book, you kind of jump forward in time. Yeah. Uh, to where the survivors have, um, have, uh, grown up. Yes. Um, have you, have you had much interaction, um, with survivors? I have had some, not a lot. Um, most of my interaction has been with victims of just generally abuse, um, uh -huh. I've, with people who've been, you know, victims of molestation, um, a lot of, a lot of women who have been molested and it was never brought to justice and they've just kind of lived with these wounds their entire life. Right. Um, and I, I've had some experience with a local um, child advocacy center who works with, um, victim, ch child victims of abuse. And that's kind of where I got the idea of, at the end of the book, when they're in that place, um, you know, when you realize how many thousands of kids have come through there for counseling because they have been victims of rape, molestation, trafficking, you know, it's just there's so many variations of abuse out there. And the the human trafficking part is very underground. So unless unless like my friend, you know, she has those connections and work does a lot of underground work. I don't. So more of what I know is going to be through her, through the, the stories that I've been told, and that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so now, what do you think has been, uh, like within your own situation and within your own church, mm -hmm. uh, have been the, the outgrowth 
of your book? The book was published probably about a year after we started going to the church we go to now. So they really didn't know me that well yet. Um, I know that several people in the church have read it. Um, we have begun doing some outreach to a local motel um, that's not far from our church. Just kind of going and feeding people, getting to know them, praying with them, that sort of thing. So there's been kind of the first steps taken. Um, I've done a lot of talking to our pastors about just the reality of what's going on. Because that that is the motel I would go to years ago and and see what was going on. So um, they are aware and there's there's a definite um, effort to find out how we can help, you know, but you can't just send somebody in there who doesn't know what to expect because the, you know, you can open a door and meth fumes come pouring out. So you can't show up there with your kids <laughs> saying, we're here to give you an Easter basket, you know, and I mean, you just, you have to be trained and, and know what you're doing to deal with, with people in these situations. There's a lot of, um, a lot of spiritual warfare, involved in it. Um, a lot of oppression. That's very evident when you talk to these people, a lot of addicts, a lot of people with very severe mental illness, you know, and some people you just really have a difficult time holding a conversation with because they're just strung out. Right. You know? And women who are in prostitution are very often on something because that's how they cope. Right. Well, and, and it's, it's a way of keeping them uh, yes. enslaved uh, yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah. So the church, I believe, is becoming aware of it. Um, our church is smaller and, and it's more of a new um, outreach for us. But I have seen the desire to make an impact and to figure out what we can do to kind of you help. Mentioned, you mentioned training. Mm -hmm. uh, what kind of training? Really? Um, and we haven't even done it yet. So this is very early. But um, one of the things is just to help people understand what you're going to see when you when you go to these motels, what you could encounter, um, how to handle someone who is, you know, high or strung out on something, how to handle someone who's mentally ill, um, you know, what to avoid, just kind of those sort of things, you know, because it's like I said, it's different than going into just a regular neighborhood with a gift basket and just saying, you know, we're here from the local church and we'd love for you to attend sometime. You know, the people in the motels are probably not going to ever tithe. <laughs> right. You know, like you mentioned earlier, this is not a, a lucrative ministry. You're not going to get people coming into your church who are going to be contributing financially or possibly even otherwise if they even come to church. So most likely you're going to get people, the hope is just to let them know that there is a real God who loves them and that there is a real savior who died for them. And if we can get them to um, at least grasp that basic knowledge of Jesus and recognize that they need him. I mean, that's, that's the, that's their biggest need. And then from there, you just hope that the Lord takes it and goes with it, you know? A few years ago, there was um, a documentary uh, that won one of the Academy Awards called Born into Brothels. Mm. Have you seen that? Uh, I have not. I feel like I've heard the title. Uh, it's it's mostly, I believe it's set in India. Okay. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it documents, you know, the, the lives of the children 
mm -hmm. of, of prostitutes. Wow. Uh, you know, that are, that are in, uh, in brothels, uh, you know, yeah. that are in particular districts of town. Um, and, and, you know, you, you get the sense that internationally as, as you convey, uh, in your book, um, that it, it's generational. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. Uh, prostitutes end up prostituting their children mm -hmm. um, as a part of the experience. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that happens here too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, well, when you, um, when you were developing this story, you also, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, the, the, the human trafficking experience, um, began to take center stage, but, but interweave with that along sub beside that, um, was Kelly's experience, mm -hmm. uh, of being, uh, someone growing up in, in, in poor circumstances. Yes. Uh, talk about that. Um, yeah. So she was based on my childhood best friend. And, um, in fact, the grandmother, Granny V, was my best friend's grandmother. Her, her name in real life was not Violet. Right. But, um, but she was someone, I mean, that we just adored. And so Kelly really represents my friend. And, you know, she, Kelly was raised in a trailer park, you know. And, and in the book, Kelly, Kelly's dad has left the family. And she's struggling. She's got brothers who were troublemakers because they're, you know, fatherless kids. And, um, you know, and, and really in, in the world, she'd be considered an at-risk kid. Um, and that was one of the one of the things I thought about as I was writing the story is could she get sucked into this, you know, right. into this. And she doesn't. But it was something that I did honestly kind of kick around the idea but, you know, just the reality that there's so many different types of brokenness out there and fatherlessness is is one of them. Um, and, you know, Kelly, Kelly just wanted a normal life. You know, she just wanted some normalcy and to be like the other kids at school. And um, Melody has a compassion for her. She sees Kelly's needs is able to, and is able to kind of meet them in a way that doesn't make Kelly feel like she's a charity case, you know, which is important for her at 12. Mm -hmm. So I wanted there to be just the interweaving of different lives and recognizing that because in the real world, you know, that's how we are. I mean, everybody's got their own baggage that they're carrying and Melody feels very stuck in the middle of all of this, you know, not quite sure what to do with what she's realized. And, you know, I don't, I don't know that Kelly is able to fully take on the burden herself because she's already got a lot going on. But Melody's in a place where she's more secure and she's able to to reach out and get the help that she needs. Why did you choose the particular time frame you did? You said it was in the 80s. Mm -hmm. I chose it because I had a friend who I grew up with who um, the year I started writing the book, um, I, my mom still lives in our home. My parents still live in my hometown in Texas. 
And my mom sent me an article from the local paper about this girl who had come out of rehab and was sharing her story in the local paper. And in the story, she talked about how she had been being molested her entire childhood. And this was one of my friends. I sat next to her in band. I worked with her when I was 16 at the chicken shop. You know, I, I knew her well and we had no idea, Mm. no idea what was going on at home. And I, it it was just shocking to me. And I thought, you know, what if I had recognized, I mean, now I can look back as an adult. Now I can look back and see all the signs. I'm like, Oh, well, yeah, of course she was. That's why she acted like that. But we all just thought she was wild. You know, we thought she was loose, you know, all the words that you used back in the (laughs) eighties. But, um, you know, we had no idea. Now I can see that the way she behaved were some, some ways of acting out because she was being abused. And I thought if I had known, what would I have done? Who would I have told? How would I have helped her? And so I guess for me writing the story, it was kind of like going back in time and getting a redo (laughs) a little bit of like, you know, here's what could have happened if somebody had known and had, had gotten her some help. Were you able to reconnect with her? Um, I mean, not really. She's, you know, I've, I think we're Facebook friends, but I haven't talked to her or seen her in person in, you know, probably 30 years. When I was a writer, um, what do you do? How do you go about um, fictionalizing real people? Um, Cause I know, I know, you know, yeah. one of the, one of the things that. Uh, kind of risky. <laughs> You know, my, my, my son, uh, works at the Thomas Wolf, uh, museum here in Asheville and, and, you know, Thomas Wolf's, uh, wrote a book about Asheville, you know, and about the distinct people, you know, and, and, and so when the book first came out, you know, Thomas Wolf was lambasted because, you know, everybody kind of knew who he was talking about. (laughs) Uh, So what do you do, you know, as, as a writer, uh, when you, you know, take, you know, fictionalize real, real people, yeah. like, say your friends and stuff. Do you have to ask them? Well, what I know I, I didn't, <laughs> maybe I should have. When I, after I wrote the book, I contacted the girl who had been my best friend, who, who is, you know, Kelly in the book. And I just said, Hey, I just want you to know who these characters are. You know, Kelly is you and granny V is your grandma. And I sent her a copy of the book and she, she cried her eyes out, you know, it was huge for her because her grandmother passed away when we were 16. Mm. And um, so it was like for her to know that someone all these years later still thought about her grandmother that way and loved her and was willing to do this, you know, and use her as a very important character in this book. It really meant a lot to her. And um, she's probably the only one. And then at my hometown, like they know I was interviewed by, my local hometown paper and they knew that the book was based on my hometown and in the local TV station too. I got to do an interview with them and, you know, so they recognized some of the, some of the streets that were talked about and some of the locations, you know, they were familiar to the people who grew up when I did. That was kind of fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, one of the things, because my wife was a, a middle school chorus teacher in a public school, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that she encountered um, 
and that, you know, our children, um, we're in a cult, we're in a, a much more sexually visible and permeated culture. Yes. Than I was. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean it wasn't there and it wasn't cloaked when I was growing up, but more explicitly. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, children are active. Uh, Way younger. Right. Uh, how, how do you see this as contributing to the phenomenon that you wrote about? I believe it is absolutely causing it to explode. Um, you know, you look at even things like TikTok. Um, you know, I have a TikTok account. So, um, you know, there, there can be some good things about any sort of, any sort of um, modern, you know, technology. But with the hypersexualization of women and the push for that to be younger and younger and younger, children are being desensitized to what should be commonly decent, proper boundaries. You know, kids are exposed to um, sexual things. I think they said the average age now for a young boy to see pornography is nine years old. Mm-hmm. You know, so when, you, when you've been exposed, I mean, those sort of things actually rewire the brain. And they can cause a child to not recognize as a danger something that is dangerous. Right. And so you're opening children up to being at risk of molestation, human trafficking. You know, kids are are lured into places by strangers on the Internet. And we've all heard the stories, you know, of what can happen. But um, and even just the simple things like cameras mounted in a girl's locker room and you've got girls, you know, changing for their basketball game and they don't know that their images are being recorded and sold on Pornhub. Mm-hmm. You know, there's just it, it, the, the ability for these images to be captured and shared is so much beyond what we can even control now. You know, kids are at great, great risk. And I was thinking today, I was talking to my mother-in-law and she was talking about how when we were kids, you know, it just, turned into daylight savings time over the weekend. So now where we live near Nashville, it's dark at four 30. <laughs> so right. night comes early. And she said, you know, when, when we were kids, they'd play outside in the streetlights. And she said, they probably don't do that there anymore. Do they? I said, no, you don't ever see kids outside after dark. Yeah. They, I mean, who would now, you know, what goes on? And there's, there are people who literally canvas neighborhoods looking for kids that are untended. Hmm. Yeah. Well, because I remember, um, you know, when I was beginning to understand and explore this, that, uh, you know, pimps hang out uh, in in bus stations and, mm-hmm. and look for runaways. Yeah. You know, that that have escaped from some kind of hard situation to begin with. Yeah. Uh, but fall victim uh, to the supposedly these guys, uh, mostly guys uh, mm-hmm. that show some kind of caring uh initially uh as yeah. a number of, of getting them uh trapped and that's another issue where fatherlessness is at play as well because you think about young girls who don't grow up with the love of a father and so when they are running away or you know whatever happens 
and these guys step in, you know, these girls have this vulnerability that's there. And when this guy comes in and says, well, I will love you. I will take care of you. You know, right. they're very susceptible to that because they're, they have that wound that's there that hasn't been, hasn't been dealt with. One of the things that I think is so important to help prevent this is that we as the church and as human beings, we, we can step into those spaces where we identify vulnerable kids, you know, kids who are fatherless, father, fatherless, sorry, or kids who are, you know, from broken situations of whatever kind, um, stepping into their lives and loving them, helping them, making sure they get educations, making sure they have opportunities, making sure they've got food and clothing, you know, when they're not in school. Those are the kind of things that help kids recognize that they have worth. And that makes them less susceptible to the deceptions of someone who would use them. One of the things that um, we were very aware of at the church I pastored um, is that churches themselves have to be careful because predators seek out churches yeah. uh, to be involved. It's an easy way because most churches are desperate for any kind of people that show interest in, in, in you know, you want to be involved in our church? Yeah. Wow. You want to take leadership? Right. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and so we had to, you know, we had four uh, registered sexual predators. Uh, in our congregation. And, and so I had to be very uh, explicit and open with anybody that visited to say, we know who they are. Here's who they are. Yeah. Uh, Because it's public record. And so Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not portraying any confidences in, uh, in saying uh, here are these people in our congregations. We keep boundaries on them. Uh, Here's how we train anybody who is involved with our young people in any way. Yeah. Uh, Boy, that had to be touchy. <laughs> and well, but that was part of what we did, you know. Is that yeah, you that's good. Get, you don't get to work with any of our, our young people yeah. without taking the training and yeah. without being monitored. And uh, um, because there was, you know, there there were a couple of situations where uh, there were there were people pushing boundaries and mm-hmm. that were um, uh, evidencing uh, the potential. Oh wow. I had to, that I had to call into question yeah. and, uh, and there was even uh, one occasion where there was uh, a person who uh, wanted to join the church, but I had learned that they had been asked to leave another church. Mm. Um, and, and we pretty well said, uh, if you're thinking of joining here, no, <laughs> yeah. you know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, I know it's complicated. I know our church, they do background checks on anybody who, you know, works with children. Even my, like my girls work with the kids and she had to get a background check at 14, you know, so they're very diligent about that, which is, you know, I mean, you just have to be, you, you cannot just let someone sign up just because they're a warm body. (laughs) You've got to make sure that they're safe. Don't, don't, don't do background checks and, yeah. And, and and people get victimized by church members. Yeah. Oh yeah, you hear it all the time. Yeah. So well your book is 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 deeply important and Thank uh, you. I hope it continues being read. 
Thank you so uh, much. I hope in some way this helps promote that. Uh, thank you for your interest in what you do. Uh, thank you for your art, or you know, and so hopefully uh, in the future we can uh, talk again about another book. Uh, now, now, That's my hope. Something I meant to ask uh, before we kind of got into the to the subject of, of human trafficking. Yeah. Because uh, you had said you write poetry, but but are you going to publish any of your poems? The only place I've ever published it has been on on a blog. Um, I've never. I'm not a great poetry writer by any stretch of the imagination. I'll have a few moments of illumination here and there, but um, I've, you know, I've written Any some of them poems. appear on Foundling House? What's that? Any of them appear on Foundling House? No, I never put any poetry on there, mm -mm. but um, it was more just stories that I wrote there. But I've written some poems. In fact, I've been thinking about sharing a few on my blog for Advent coming up. There's some that I had written a few years ago, and I've considered, you know, bringing those back from the dead and <laughs> letting those uh, be shared over Advent. So we'll see. But, yeah, I mean, I poetry can be an outlet for me. There's times where I've released a lot of um, strong emotions through poetry in a way that you can't necessarily just through writing it out. Um, and then, you know, yeah, I don't know. I've never, I've, I have written enough to ever say I could make it into a book, but I enjoy good poetry. Okay. Well, again, thank you for being with me. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you. Well, you are listening to Practicing Gospel. I'm David Rayburn. The music for this episode comes from a clip of a song called Father Let Your Kingdom Come that is on the Porter's Gate Worship Project Work Songs album and used by permission by the Porter's Gate Work Project. You can purchase the album and learn more about the Worship Project by going to the website, theportersgate.com. This show has as its purpose enabling you to hear the voices of the Christian left and about the issues and concerns that are of interest to the Christian left Practicing Gospel, Inc. is a non-profit organization. If you like what you've heard, go to my website at practicing-gospel.blubrry.net to subscribe and hopefully to donate. Your participation will help me continue this effort. Thank you for listening and for your support. Blessings. Hey, the words from my mouth. Speak your